quality meeting and we are live oh uh michael yep howdy um anyway what i was saying was we were doing a dtma this morning it was probably we we were doing the quality session so we were meeting with the quality group and the client says to oh hold on i gotta and the client says to his team right as the meeting's ending he's like hey Walker's doing the live Q&A today. So if you guys want to chime in, yeah, I mean, there's like, you know, 40 people in this huge organization. <clears throat> He's like, you guys should join the live Q&A. We actually do cover a lot of great questions. And actually this week, we got some awesome questions that we're going to cover. We've so we've got a ton of questions. Uh, you guys, uh, we, every week we're live here joining uh, the Industry 4.0 weekly live Q&A Tuesday at noon central. Make sure to subscribe, ring the bell. Hit that like button. It does help out the algorithm. We we want to get this content out to more people. We've got a ton of questions. Make sure if you're not already, join the Industry 4.0 Community Discord. And um, we have a member of our community, Ishihari, already joined on the on the um, community spotlight today. So we've got a, an awesome show. So uh, as everyone's getting into the live here, we're just going to be um, you know answering your questions right after this community spotlight. So thank you everyone for joining. And uh, we'll get right hey, into it. Hey, Shri, is it okay? Do you go by Shri or do you go by Shrihari? Uh, either is fine. Uh, you're doing a pretty good job of Shrihari, so uh, that works. Okay. But I respond to Shri or Hari, so you can. Any, any partner, nearly basically every partner I have <laughs> like, who had the name Shrihari or Shrikanth, they always go by Shri. So it's like, um, Real quick, uh, we got three minutes before we'll get into the the spotlight. Hey, Cheryl, how's it going? David Schultz, been giving a lot of shout outs to David Schultz lady lately. Liam, David Schultz is the prototype of how you can take our mentorship program and digital mastermind program and translate that into a thriving industry 4.0 consulting. Uh, I heard he's like too too busy now. He is too busy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, he can chime in if he wants to, but he I know he's busy. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. But if you look at if you look at the all the people in the program, you got you know guys like Dave Schultz, Andrew Ott, like um, who was the Taylor uh, yeah. Taylor. Yeah, Taylor um, Taylor Turner. Taylor Turner. Yeah, there are certain people who have just like blown through all the training, like just blasted through it. And they're ready to have their Schultz. practicals reviewed too, right. by the way. Schultz is one of those guys. And another interesting thing, I had my second Pfizer vaccine shot on Saturday. Not that you guys care, but I care. Um, and I was definitely terrified I was going to get deathly ill because one of my kids got really, really sick when he had the second shot. But he was the only one. Everyone else in our family didn't have any side effects. And then, you want to know? Uh, you want to know what side effect I got? My hands are numb, so I've been—I I literally cannot feel my hands. So imagine that. Like my fingers work. Like I can use my fingers, but I can't feel the keys on my keyboard. If someone touches my hand, I can't feel it. My literally, it's as if my hands are asleep you know, all day long. Um, that's the only thing I, I, uh, 
I got. So I was by uh, Brant Wiederholt. Uh, I was the last person on my team to uh, to get fully vaccinated because I of my travel schedule. But everybody else, actually, I think there's maybe one other person who isn't fully vaccinated. But of everybody who's gotten vaccinated, I'm the last one to get the second shot. So and um, <clears throat> and I did get Pfizer. So if anybody's wondering, but I, I saw that Eric Clapton said that he had the same symptom. He he thought he wasn't going to be able to play guitar ever again or something. So, but I, I am able to type. I just keep making a lot of mistakes. Uh, Mario Nishikawa. Good to see you, buddy. Zach Wooten. Good to see you. Oh, we are. We are out Jason loud Bean. to announce this now. Jason Bean. Oh, sweet. Let's do it. Let's Swag make up. the announcement and then we'll Swag get to start. We'll get to the interview. It's a one. It's a one word announcement. Swag up. So, uh, we're, we're, we are getting uh, swag packs for you guys, for our, everyone in our mentorship program and our mastermind program. Uh, we're working with swag up and we're also working with Phoenix contact to bring you guys those. And so what that means is at no additional cost to you, everyone in our mentorship program is going to get shipped. I mean, this, this swag pack, uh, I'm not going to share what's inside of it, but you guys are going to really like unboxing it. It's a great experience. There's some Phoenix contact PLC next swag in there. And there's some 4.0 solutions swag and a, in there. So a really huge, huge shout out to Ira and the group at at Phoenix Contact for partnering with us on this. So it's a significant investment to buy swag for people. Um, and uh, so we, you know, Phoenix Contact was more than happy to to do this with us. And um, so I now there it, are there are a limited yep. number. Um, yes. It's a lot. There's a lot of a lot of packs, but there are a limited number. Um, considering we have 2,000 pre-registrants for the uh, Architecting Your Industry 4.0 Career Launch Event, if you guys are interested in joining mentorship and you're not already, there's a limited number. So once those swag packs are gone, but know, everyone who's currently in mentorship will get one, right? It's just absolutely. yeah, everyone who is currently in mentorship is going to get a swag pack. So if you're in digital mastermind that means you're also in mentorship that it's automatic so um everybody who's currently in the mentorship program is going to get the a swag pack and but there's a limited amount for the people who join mentorship afterwards um, and so. and we're doing um with the mentees uh connecting plc next to the unified namespace so we're we're doing a workshop with you guys private workshop hands-on so many of you guys have already bought the plc next starter kit uh, I know David Schultz has it. A few other uh, people after I did that parody video bought it. So um, if you guys don't have it, that's okay because you can still download the software for free and we're going to develop an application so you'd see how you would connect to the unified namespace. Uh, but you know, as part of this partnership, we want to not just give you swag, but also teach you how to use. And uh, Zach, correct me if I'm wrong here because I wasn't really part of putting the swag together other than approving that we go ahead and do it. Um, the the fact that there were so many people in the community who did uh, get the the PLC next um, that obviously must have helped to drive the decision, right? Yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah, um, it's really alignment of values. Really, um, they like what we're doing. We like what they're doing. So it was a natural partnership, and it's going to be something that if you guys like it and it's successful, we're going to continue to do more swag swag drops. And swag up does not. Swag up does not sponsor us in any way, shape, or form. No, nope, we're no, but we're giving guys, them the shout out. Them. 
It's yeah. a really great platform for doing more with less. <clears throat> right. Um, all right. Uh, Zach, drop uh, Vaughn's video, he said. Um, all right, cool. So with that, let's uh, get to the community spotlight. So um, Shri, correct. Uh, Shri Hari, Shri Hari, correct me. Uh, your last name's Murthy. That's right. Yes. All right. Shri Hari Murthy, you are from um, factory.ai, right? That's right. Why don't, yes. why don't you go ahead and give, a, give the community a quick introduction and then I'll ask you a couple of questions. Sure. So um, I'm a mechanical engineer by qualification. And uh, when I started my career early on, um, I actually had an opportunity to work at a really interesting, on a really interesting project, which was uh, we were setting up one of the first aerospace manufacturing factories in the Middle East. Um, I was part of the team when there were only about 20 people there and four pillars in the middle of the desert. Uh, and uh, I sort of was wondering what I was getting myself into, but it was a fantastic experience. Uh, because by the time I left, I think they had more than 500 people in the company and one of the most state-of-the-art manufacturing facilities uh, in the Middle East. And um, when when we started, like my first role in the engineering team was um, to help uh, build the factory, do the layout, um, uh, and then we started getting the equipment in. So I was uh, helping with the process qualifications. Uh, once that happened, uh, we had to start getting uh, the production line set up. So. I spent a lot of time during that phase uh, touring the Boeing factories in North America, the Airbus factories across Europe, um, and uh, we started getting the production lines set up uh, there. And 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 this was mainly uh, composite manufacturing, so carbon fiber, glass fiber components, uh, purely composites, no no metal parts. Um, and um, once we got the production lines set up, um, you know, and started ramping up the production, uh, that's when the real fun began because. Uh, because, you know, because we were we were a tier one uh, supplier, we were supplying to both Airbus, Boeing, as well as other customers. Um, we we actually had product uh, products in the factory that were of different shapes, sizes, different rates of productions, and um, all uh, and different process flows, uh, but all using the same equipment. And um, you know, th there are a lot of process complexities in the manufacture of composite uh, components, aerostructures, uh, because you've got sort of single piece. Uh, uh, processes flowing into batching processes, flowing back into single piece processes, and um, you know, on top of that, you've got like material life issues and 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 things like that. And and so, uh, what we quickly realized that if we had to make this work and and get it, you know, to be a profitable uh, business, uh, we had to really optimize capacity. And one critical aspect of optimizing the capacity of our critical like capital. Uh, you know, intensive equipment was how efficiently we could uh, sequence work uh, through these uh, through these pieces of equipment, and um, that's when you know we looked at some of the. Um, I was tasked with looking at what's out there in the industry, and and I found that a lot of the standard off-the-shelf products didn't suit our requirements uh, out of the box, and uh, and then I got in touch with this company in Canada actually called Visualate. A great bunch of guys uh, really know their stuff when it comes to planning scheduling. And uh, we worked on a different model where we kind of developed uh, a system that integrated backward planning and forward scheduling capability, connected it to the live uh, ERP system. We were using SAP, uh, and sort of what we were doing was how did you how did how did you uh, connect to SAP? Well, let, let, let's get a little technical for everybody. What was the mechanism that you were using to interface? So we used a connector, I think uh, off-the-shelf connector. Uh, it was Extract IS, I think by Theobold Software, but it was a discrete, like very much the Industry 3.0 approach, you know, of a discrete connection. Mes that. Message queue, message message queue directly into SAP, right? Uh, okay, got it. 
So um, you know, we we started doing that, and 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 we we had this uh, platform running, and it, it had uh, uh, you know there were some really interesting results there because uh, what we were doing was we were uh, it was basically like running a simulation uh, daily, uh, you know, based on the live status of the factory, and um, while doing that project, um, you know, we found that there's a lot of scope to expand this into uh, a more full fledged uh, capability. Um, and um, once I sort of finished working on that project, uh, I was actually interested to go and pursue further studies. So uh, I'd been with the company for about four to five years, and, and I was actually looking to, uh, you know, pursue academics. And uh, so when I left, um, there was an opportunity in between where there were a few more companies who wanted to implement a similar system and and look at optimizing planning scheduling in complex environments. So uh, that's when I took that opportunity and set up my first company, Stigmergy Solutions. Uh, where the goal was, uh, so, so basically I come from a process engineering, industrial engineering background, right? So I'm the guy who would, uh, like, I, I understand uh, how inventory methodologies work. I understand how to optimize bottlenecks. You know, like if you give me uh, utilization information and, um, you know, average waiting time in front of machines, I can tell you four different things about what to do. Uh, you know, in front of that. But the biggest challenge that I was having, and as I went into that first startup and we started working with companies in the aerospace and, uh, you know, automotive sector and in complex environments was that a lot of the time I just didn't have the right data in front of me. Uh, right? And um, uh, especially, uh, you know, one of the projects brought me back to India. So, so all this while I was working outside India with manufacturers, but one of the projects brought me back to India. And, and that's when I realized that a lot of the data which we needed to actually do this kind of high level analysis just didn't exist, wasn't, you know, either didn't exist or it was on pen and paper, uh, you know, or it was not accurate. Uh, and and this was with you know so-called high-tech manufacturers who are supposed to be sort of the cream of the manufacturing when you look at aerospace automotive. And so then I got interested and I said, hey, look, this is this isn't going to work if if this is if this is the way that you know it, it's going to go ahead. And and I started uh, we started interviewing and and visiting manufacturers all across India, um, where. Um, we realized that this was a very widespread problem. Uh, you know, I don't know, uh, more so probably here because uh, manufacturing is still very labor intensive. And so we realized the first thing that we have to actually start to do is, is digitization, right? Before we can even get to the whole digital transformation discussion, industry 4.0 discussion, like basic digitization is not there. And I was getting very frustrated that a lot of the big companies were going to these manufacturers and trying to sell them uh, industry 4.0 solutions, when clearly the problem was that they didn't even have basic digitization. Right. Right. Exactly. Industry so, 4.0 solutions. Right. Yeah. In, in air quotes. Yes. Um, yeah. real, real quick. Um, so I, I just wanted to touch on a quick point. I just did a consulting I, I just did a DTMA for a client in the Northeast uh, a few weeks ago, and I'm, I'm doing one this week for a client in the Midwest. And um, the client in the in the Northeast um, is a you know 60 year old manufacturer, and they I mean 80 percent of their equipment has no intelligence whatsoever. I mean they're collecting literally they got the lowest they got a they literally got a zero score for engineering and they got a zero score for data collection, edge data collection, which is unheard of in a DTMA by the, it's the first time that ever happened because they have no data collection from the equipment in any way, shape or form. And the client that I'm meeting with this week, it sounds like they have entire processes where there's literally no intelligence on the plant floor. Well, there, even if there is intelligence, they're collecting none of the data. There's literally an entire human paper layer between the events on the plant floor and any type of data collection. So while, yes, you're correct, there, no question that in India, China, Mexico, uh, where, where manufacturing is still very labor intensive, 
there's less intelligence on the plant floor. Um, I'll, I'll bet that there are ma- whole industries in the United States that are just not that far off from what you're seeing, um, you know, boots on the ground. So, sorry. Uh, so let me, let's talk about factory.ai. So I, I've looked at, it looks like you guys are a relatively new company, right? You guys are rolling out now and it looks like you're, you know, data collections, the focus to begin with, right? So do you want to tell us who is factory.ai and what's the value proposition? What's the value you're providing to the industry? Sure. So uh, factory.ai is basically uh, three people uh, who started it at the moment. So it was myself. Uh, my colleague Adrian, who uh, has an automotive uh, background, and uh, he actually did his industrial engineering from Virginia Tech in the US, and he was working with Cummins for a while there. Uh, he helped them set up their first uh, OE, uh, you know, uh, Mac- Excel macro-based, uh, uh, you know, platform. So he understands that aspect very well, and has been uh, working with me for for a long time. And um, and Hitanjan, who um, who looks after the tech side of things, he has an interesting background as well. Uh, he was heading the uh, machine learning team at um, a Silicon Valley startup that was founded by Tesla's ex-chief information officer. Uh, and it was in the automotive retail space. Uh, and, and all three of us went to the same undergrad university. Uh, so we've known each other for a while. And when we were discussing, so you know, the learnings that I had from my first company where we were doing consulting work and, and you know, realizing that we couldn't really do very good consulting if we didn't have the right kind of data led me, you know, and led us to sort of form factory.ai where we said that, look, we need to build products as well that help these manufacturers that are right engineered for the guys on the shop floor who, uh, you know, um, that, that makes it easy. So especially when we looked at manual data collection, right? And with the aim with factory.ai was to solve higher level challenges because uh, Hitanjan sort of from the tech side has uh, the, uh, the the full stack experience of, of, of building products and applications end to end plus the machine learning and AI side of things. But we realized, I mean, even in his previous company, he realized that no matter how good their models were with poor data, uh, you just didn't get good, um, you know, good, good results and good insights. And so uh, when we when we looked at our first product of digitizing the shop flow data collection process, um, we uh, we sort of asked it in a fundamentally very different way. Like I was tired of people saying that, um, you know, uh, shop floor workers are not skilled enough to use technology, and that's why it's not being implemented. I mean, Correct. I always thought of it as that, you know, technology is not intuitive enough to be used by, you know, by all people. And so let, let, let's say this: I literally, I, I couldn't possibly agree with you more. I we I was just saying this this week. You know, if you're building, if you're u- building digital solutions, software solutions that are not intuitive, okay, I mean. There are no instructions that come with apps that you download from the app store. Okay, so I mean, it it has to be it, it's intuitive, right? You just it it you can intuitively figure out how to work you, to use the the solution. And if you don't, then there's something wrong with the way you developed it. That's the first piece. Second piece is the fu- the the employee of the future is a technologist. Okay, the employee of the future is somebody who came out the came out of the womb with a smartphone in their hand and a and had an iPad in their lap and watch videos on Kindles and they could type a hundred words a minute at the age of eight. Um, they're purely technical. That's the standard. That's literally on the mean for, for that generation, the employee of the future. And if you aren't developing your manufacturing infrastructure t- toward that employee, then you are already behind the competition. Guess what will happen? People like you, you're obviously younger than me. You and your team are obviously much younger than I am. You guys walk into plants and all you see is, A, you hang your head, shake your head, and all you do is see opportunity. 
and you go, wow, if these guys are able to make money operating their facility, you know, in from the stone ages, imagine if I take what I know and apply it to their industry, I can put them out of business in 18 months. I can't tell you how many plants I've walked into and said, if I took some of my wealth and, in, and decided to put you out of business, I could easily do it. E- literally easily do it. I could, I could do everything you're doing with a hundred machines and I could do with three or four and I could do it with, a, you know, um, with a, my, an army of data analysts. So I agree with you 100% that, that the, the idea that you're not going to trust your workers to use technology is preposterous. It's literally preposterous when they live their lives leveraging technology all day long. Let, let me ask you this. How did, how did you find our community? So when, you know, so you, I, I, I've t- been taking, I encourage everyone to go to it's uh, factory.ai, F-A-C-T-R-I.ai. I looked at DataWiz. It looks like, it looks like you're, you know, you're just getting up off the ground. Everything looks interesting. It looks very interesting for me, especially like the fact that you're digitizing the human collection effort, right? That, that, that's part of your solution, right? As opposed to, uh, just collecting from equipment there you, you part of what you're offering is the ability to digitize quickly humans collecting data and information by using QR and barcode and that kind of stuff right so I find I that looks very very interesting to me but we have limited time so I want to how, how did you find our community and and what are you getting out of it what it what how how is the industry 4.0 community specifically the discord server helping to serve your your needs Sure. So, uh, you know, we, we started there, but, but, you know, throughout my life, like I've always followed the problem. So, you know, my, my goal is to help these companies digitize and sort of, you know, do, do this, the same things that, that you talk about on your channel. Right. So when we started helping manufacturers get the first step, right, digitize, getting rid of pen paper on the shop floor. Uh, then, so what's the next step then, right? The next step becomes that now we need to integrate this with with the other data that the factory is generating with machines, with uh, existing systems, if they have any. Uh, and, um, you know, from my experience in, in the past, um, I sort of uh, realized this, the same fact that discrete connections are just not scalable. Like you cannot, you know, make point-to-point connections between all the systems and and it, and it doesn't work. And there has to be a better way to get access to all this data in, in on a common platform. And, and you know, so I was looking and, and saying, surely this problem has must have been solved before, right? I can't be <laughs> the first one to have come across it. And and and, and that's what led us, you know, led, led me and my team to your channel. And, and, and when we saw that, I mean, I think it was Cheryl in one of the previous videos that I had seen where she said, look, you know, I found my tribe kind of a thing. And I said, look, this is exactly, like, this is it, right? This, this needs to happen if what we if, if we want to take companies from getting rid of pen paper on the shop floor all the way up to you know machine learning ai and then you know back feeding the decisions that come out of that back into uh, operational adjustments uh, right Th- this this has to happen this infrastructure has to happen and and so when i joined the discord community um, you know and 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 the thing is what i love about the community and and what you've put together here is that you know, all all the relevant information is there if if one wants to search for it and find it. And um, you know, I've I have my perspective. Like I've seen my slice of the pie in terms of you know what where I come from with my background. But there's so much that I don't know as well, right? And 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 what the mastermind program is is helping me do the mentorship program as well. I'm going through that. You know, as Zach knows that. So is is that. It's helping me fine tune, uh, you know, understand what these tools actually do, uh, how they could be used in innovative ways. Because, like I said, like I, 
if you give me the data, I, I'm the person who knows, you know, who can advise you what to do with that to improve your manufacturing process. But now when I'm learning about the tools and technologies in more like with more in a more nuanced way, well, the way that you explain it, it sort of lends, you know, gives me more creativity, gives me more superpowers, if I were to say it that way, right? So <laughs> um, it, it's it's just, I've loved the community. I mean, it was, uh, I just wish I found it earlier. I, I can tell you that um, the it's grown to something we never anticipated, to be honest with you. I mean, um, we knew that it would resonate, but it grew to something that we knew, you know, we, we, I use this moth to a flame thing. <coughs> Most people, you know, you can try and search for a needle in a haystack, right? And I, I use this illustration all the time. You can search for a needle in a haystack. That is trying to find like-minded thinkers. Whether you're doing that among colleagues and among the industry or whether you're doing that with a client, you're trying to find the change agent inside the facility who gets it, right? You can search for that needle in a haystack or... You can use a magnet to draw that needle out, right? But what you can't do is ask the farmer to turn all of the straw into needles, right? The 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 CEO of whatever <clears throat> company you're going to partner with, right? And that I think the I think the industry 4.0 community does that. You know, there's one thing I think that the community all has in common, and it isn't the technology. It is the values and the mission, right? The values and the mission are what is common. And a, recog a recognition that prevailing thought, the way that the large organizations, you know, Rockwells and Siemens and all those guys of the world have approached digital transformation. GE is the perfect example. I was just talking this morning about how I stay away from GE because I don't consider them a player. But they're a prototypical example of how you don't approach digital transformation. I think everyone, our community is all frustrated with that and you know, all we really do is just say the things that everyone else already thinks. And that's the moth to the flame, right? So I, I appreciate you joining. I, I do want you to stay on. And if you want to comment on any of the questions that I go through, that would be um, really cool. Let, let me um, schedule. I uh, share my screen. Um, yeah, thanks for your heart. I want to I give a shout out to Michael Dowdell and uh, Mr. Rankinen, Jeff Rankinen. Um, one of the things I was going to ask Srihari was, you know, you know, you have one of your partners went to Vod Tech or whatever, uh, Virginia Tech, and I used to spend a lot of time in Blacksburg partying because I, I, I was at uh, in, going to school in Raleigh, and uh, um, Schneider Electric is evolving. To answer your question, Ka Schneider Electric, it seems is evolving in the right direction with some latest product releases, um, but they're still behind the curve. Um, let me get to which. How do I know which screen I'm sharing? Zach. Um, mm. All right, there you go. That no, that's not the one I want. I want screen two. It previews it. Sorry, the Streamyard is different than. Uh, um. All right, is that good? Am I? Yeah, it is. That's exactly Very what good. I'm looking at. All right, cool. Um, so live oh, Q and A for today. Guys. You guys are awesome. Uh, how many? Oh, 71, man. We're kicking ass. Um. All right, so go and check uh, factory.ai. F A C T R I. AI. Um, I see that and in, in take a look at the is it device whiz, right? Device, is that what it's called? Data whiz. Data whiz. Take a look at mm -hmm. the data whiz link. Click on that link. Um, couple of things, uh, some quick updates. Um, we have an industry 4.0 uh, 
data and information broker. Um, hey, am, uh, am I allowed to mention the um, HiveMQ is going to... Oh, well, I guess it's too late. Uh, Ian Scarrett, we're putting you on blast, man. Uh, so HiveMQ is going to give us a broker to share with the community. Um, and so we're working on that right now, but we currently have one in the cloud that we'll be sharing with all the mentees and the mastermind folks that we can share data with one another. Um, you'll get a, everyone will get a login and a password to connect to the broker. Um, say, at the very least we could connect a hundred mm -hmm. devices for free using HiveMQ, but hopefully they won't mind us, uh, correct. Getting a little more than that. And right now I've got, you know, we, we have two nodes up in the, in the cloud publishing to the broker. Um, and uh, what we're going to do is we're going to move, we're going to switch the, um, we're going to move the enterprise, the demo broker that we've been using in our training to this new shared public broker for everyone. Um, Arindam Das, you said you're going to start your career in automation. Any suggestions? Yeah, my suggestion is um, join our, we're doing a free webinar to explain architecting your industry 4.0 career. We recommend uh, you join that. Um, that. That we'll be talking about what you should do uh, in that webinar. Um, <clears throat> Tech Data Manufacturing University on June third. I have a little slide for that, and then I wanted to talk real quick about the impact of collective knowledge uh, before we get into the questions. So, uh, my decision. So, you guys may know that my background is actually in sociology. I didn't. I didn't go back to school and become an engineer until I was completing my graduate work in education. Uh, that was when I discovered automation. So um, I became an engineer at the end of my edu educational life. But I, I am a sociologist um, by, um, you know, by education. I'm a trained sociologist and a trained educator. And I wrote my thesis on constructivism, um, which is a you know educational um, paradigm. Uh, but I wanted to I wanted to point out something that uh, this is a an article that I read in 2015. Um, Joe Chim Kimmerly he led a group of sociologists to talk about learning and collective knowledge construction with social media, a process oriented perspective. This was from 2000, May of 2015, before we started doing digital media. Um, but I, I I just wanted to read the the uh, opening piece. Um, and why this article drove us to do what it is we're doing. And then I want to talk about something that I think most of us don't think about very often, okay? So the abstract was that social media is increasingly being used for educational purposes. Um, and this is for Jeff Rankinen. You might want to read this, Jeff. Jeff is a, a professor at uh, Penn Tech. Um, and he, I don't know if his students are watching us today or if it's just himself, but um, we, we consult with a lot of... Um, institutions of higher learning. And one of the things that's really, really clear is that there's the institutions of higher learning are lagging the technology. That is, they're, they're not driving the education for industry 4.0 professionals. They're learning how to create that education um, behind the bleeding edge, right? Um, but the, the, the first part of this article briefly reviews literature that reports on educational applications of social media tools. The second part discusses theories that may provide a basis for analyzing the processes that are relevant for individual learning and collective knowledge construction. So the collective knowledge construction is what you see in our community, in the Industry 4.0 community, and the individual learning. The individual learning is what the human being is 
personally benefiting from as a function of that education. We argue that a systems theoretical constructivist approach, I wrote my thesis on constructivism, is appropriate to examine the processes of educational so social media use, namely self-organization. So that is intrinsically motivated folks who are self-organizing their education, the internalization of information, that is your own interpretation of that information, the externalization of knowledge, the application of that knowledge from how you interpret it, and the interplay of externalization and internalization, providing the basis of co-evolution of cognitive and social systems. In a nutshell, what it means is that education's changing as a function of social media. When I read that article, okay, which was published in a couple of professional journals, uh, sociolo sociology journals, um, what stood out to me was that I was surprised that that um, intellectuals ha had already were already theorizing that social media, that the internet, the interwebs was going to fundamentally change the way we learn. Software developers already knew this because think about it. If you're a software developer, right? I, I'm a software developer. I'm a coder. I write programs from scratch. What's the first thing, you know, wh what is it that people think software developers do? These are some of the funniest memes. What is it that people think software developers do? And what is it they actually do? So what they think they do is they think that they write programs in their head and then spit them out on their hands. That's not what happens. We we try. We write a line or two of code. We we test it. It doesn't work. We Google some application. We go to Stack Overflow, collective knowledge. Right. We extract that collective knowledge. We internalize it. And then we externalize it in our application. Right. Um, right. Google Stack Overflow. Jeff Schrader. We spend the vast majority of our time drawing from collective knowledge as software developers. Okay. Um, that's the same thing the industry 4.0 professional does, which is a which is a which is a difference than what the industry 3.0 professional does. And I'm going to use Jeff Rankin in here. Um, I'm going to I'm going to use what Jeff Rankin in does uh, here. So Jeff Rankin in teaches um, professionals to become controls engineers. They teach teach about automation, robotics, applying those solutions, right? And then the vast majority of the theory that those students learn are in the labs where Jeff is teaching, right? That's the industry 3.0 education. In the, the industry 4.0 professional needs that foundation that they get in Jeff's lab and in Jeff's classes, right? But where they really learn and, and the knowledge they really draw from is collective knowledge in the real world. So they draw from collective knowledge all of the time, okay? So that's our foundation, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, that's our foundation. Here's something most people don't think about that I point out to our clients all the time. And it, this is something that everyone needs to understand. It's very, very going to be very, very valuable for your careers, okay? Number one, um, collective knowledge. Knowledge expands as our exposure to information grows, right? So we talk about this with agility all the time. As from a purely functional standpoint, if I'm building a digital solution in a manufacturing facility, I'm building an MES system, I'm building dashboards. What I want on my dashboards is a function of what I know today. Okay. Those dashboards are going to increase the collective knowledge of the organization, right? That happens every single day. As I look at those dashboards, I become more informed. As I become more informed, I become my knowledge changes. I know more things.
if what I want is a function of what I know, then I have to take an approach that allows me to scale uh, at the rate of the increase of exponential knowledge in the or- knowledge in the organization. That's number one. Number two, the market, the world out there, because as a function of us all being connected 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that we can join communities of thousands of like-minded thinkers and and um, learn at just an exponential rate. I mean, you think about the 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 students who are a member of the Discord server and a member of our community who are, they're getting 10 years of education in, a, in 12 months. They're getting 10 years of experience in 12 months. The, the market itself, that is the manufacturers out there, what it used to take them 10 years to learn, okay? This is why GE Predix failed, okay? What, th- this is why GE Digital failed miserably, and it only took them a couple of years to do it is because what used to take the market 10 years to learn, okay, that you're way off track, that your product is shit, whatever it is, only takes them 12 months to learn now. Why? Their access to collective knowledge and their exponential increase of that knowledge, okay? This is something we have to keep in mind. The the third industrial revolution started in the late 1960s. It took hold in the 1980s, and it really ended right around 2000, give or take. Um, the fourth industrial revolution started in 2000, really didn't take hold until 2010, and it's going to be over by 2030. So the th- fourth industrial revolution is taking, is going to take, is only going to last half the amount of time as the third industrial revolution. The, th- the third industrial revolution came a hundred years after the second, well, s- 70 years, 70 to 80 years um, after the second. And and the the second industrial revolution came a hundred years after the first. So you, what happens is is that as collective knowledge increases, the time it takes for us to learn things, it, the same volume shrinks drastically, shrinks drastically. And the same can be applied to your clients, to manufacturers, to industry, right? And the and rate at which Jeff they Rankin's, learn. And to Jeff Rankin's automation class. Correct. Um, Jeff Rankin said, you inspired my automation class to create a discord channel. The class became collaborative instead of competitive. That's awesome to hear, man. That, that's industry 4.0. It is. Uh, Arindam Das, as a beginner in automation, should I focus more on topics of operations technology like PLC programming, VFT, DS, DCS, et cetera, or should I focus more on topics of IT like machine learning, Python programming? The answer is Arindam, you need to focus on all of them. Start on the edge. I mean, um, I don't know if you're a student or if you're looking for your first job. My recommendation is get a job on the plant floor. Understand the plight of the operational, the operations technologist. You need to know what operations does. The biggest challenge that, and by the way, any engineer you talk to will, if they've been, they've only been in engineering, they've never worked on the plant floor, they've got 10 years of experience, and you ask them, what would you change about your career? The first thing they'll say is, I would have started on the plant floor because it without without understanding how manufacturing actually works on a practical level, not just a theoretical level, it's a huge disadvantage. So I would start random learning the the edge technology first and then move your way up the stack because everything that you do as you move more and more closer to the IT infrastructure 
is an extension of what happens on the plant floor. Manufacturing happens on the plant floor. It doesn't happen in a data center. The data center should merely be a reflection of what's happening on the plant floor. All right, so let's go to our live Q&A. Hopefully that was valuable. Let's go back here to the beginning. Let me refresh. Um, all right, great. <clears throat> Tech Data Manufacturing Solutions University. So this is on uh, June 3rd at 11. Walker? Hello, Zach? Oh, there we go. All right, yeah, the um, the screen. Um, I That was me doing live. that. Okay, yeah. And that right, was me doing better that. Now. Um, uh, someone asked real quick, can you define edge? Uh, edge is anything on the plant floor. So anything not on the carpeted side of the business. Got it. Yep. Okay. It looks good. Manufacturing. Yep. This one's big. This manufacturing solution university. I'd say this is one of your best pieces of content. Thank you. So, um, <clears throat> so manufacturing solutions university is putting put on by tech data and I th it's sponsored by Intel. I give the keynote address, which is like a 45, 49 minute address. I don't know if that's going to be a whole, very helpful to you guys. I think it'll be a rehash of what you know, but I do explain what manufacturing is at its, at its base level, define industry 3.0, 4.0. But then also I sit on a panel discussion at the end. Uh, I think there were five or six of us on that panel discussion. It actually ran, it went over like 35 minutes. It was a outstanding discussion, great discussion. Um, and I think, I think you're the, being a little hard on yourself. You do bring unique insight and value in in the keynote address. Okay, well, thank you. Um, you register using I'm never satisfied. So uh, the but I do appreciate that, Zach. Uh, but I, I think the panel discussion will be very helpful for people. Okay. Um, again, June 11th though, Friday, June 11th is when we're doing the architecting your industry 4.0 career. So for all of you that are asking, you know, how do I you know, architect my career? How do I become an industry 4.0 professional? What should I study? What should I focus on? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's what this webinar is for. It's totally free. It's, you know, our, um, the, uh, the, the output here is, um, this will be with our mentorship group. And so the, the, you know, we're not there to sell you anything other than, Hey, if you want to join the mentorship program, this is the kind of stuff you'll learn. The registration um, for mentorship <laughs> opens in June. So you can join before that, that webinar, but. Uh, Jeff Rankinen said one student got an internship with Mitsubishi chemical writing HMIs and ignition. That's awesome. Another has an internship with MDI. This is a first year class, by the way, made possible with your content. Man, that's, that really, that's amazing, Jeff. I really, that's pretty, honor, uh, thank you for, yeah, that's an honor for, um, Exceptional. That's awesome. And um, hey, Jeff, do you want to drop in the channel, um, you know, inf information about Pentech and the program if you want to in the chat there? That'd be great. Um, all right, let's get to the questions. So, uh, Srihari Murthy, thank you for joining us today. Appreciate you taking the time to meet with the community. Um, <clears throat> Jeff Schrader, the man, the legend, the myth. <laughs> This made me laugh out loud when I read this. Um, this is from a couple months ago, but it still makes me laugh out loud. So Jeff asked, "How has anyone has anyone managed to open the single pane of glass in the control tower's digital twin? I'm trying to plug in the digital thread, or should it connect to the digital twin of the lighthouse? 
or should I be using an actual lighthouse? Thanks in advance. <laughs> I want to make a t-shirt of that. Uh, so that if, if for those of you that are not laughing, it's because you don't know, or you probably haven't heard all the buzzwords that, are, that he's using there. <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> all right. But a, a serious question that he asked, um, so in a federated multi-unified namespace environment, where is everyone deploying their various applications and where are they integrating them? So there's been discussion about the unified namespace as being omnipresent, but what about the applications that connect to it? So I bring this up because I noticed a set of historians at the local unified namespaces in this drawing. So there was a architecture diagram that we showed that showed how you can take a local unified namespace, like at a production line or in an area, and you can basically transmit the entire namespace to a higher level namespace that aggregates multiple local unified namespaces together, right? Um, <coughs> I'm a structured text guy, Arindam. Um, But I do ladder because it's easy to read, but I prefer structured text. Um, there's been a discussion about the UNS being omnipresent, but what about the applications that connect to it? I bring this up because I know it's a set of historians at the local UNS in this drawing. When there are multiple sites and unified namespaces, how are things like historians or HMI SCADA approached? Does it become arduous maintaining local and enterprise deployed versions of applications? Or is it just easier to keep everything in one place at the enterprise level? So I'll answer that first. That, and Jeff knows this answer is coming. That depends, okay? Um, so the big, the big case study that we, so one of our architects is here this week to do a final runoff of a complete digital transformation that's been in progress for two and a half years. I think we're like on phase 32 or something crazy. The entire organization has been transformed into a, in, literally into a single level unified namespace. So that is, and, and this is, I mean, you're talking every single employee in the organization interacts through a single pane of glass. So if I'm a customer service representative and I'm, and I'm, entering in a new customer or I'm putting notes into the CRM that is done through the exact, it's all done in the same IOT platform. In fact, there aren't even, there's only three total applications being used, um, three software applications. So this is a, an extreme case of unification, which isn't really, I mean, most organizations are never going to be able to do that because they're just not going to have the leadership to do that. You know what I mean? Platform historian modeling, or what are the three? Plat well, there's really four applications, platform, um, historian, modeling, and um, uh, predictive analytics, so flow. And then we'll be adding in machine learning. Um, so we're going to be predicting scheduling failures, schedule failures. Um, so the answer is it depends. You know what I mean? Um, so for huge enterprises, you're going to have multiple layers of unified namespaces. And I'm going to show you that here in a second. What's the user experience like? Is there a seamless experience hopping around the enterprise or must one awkwardly open different projects or versions of apps when they need to switch context, enterprise site uh, A, site B? So you architect so you architect towards everything through a single pane of glass, and then there are rare edge cases where you're going to hop from one application to another. But I can tell you that in most of our implementations, um, like, for example, if I'm using... Um, you know, Factory Studio and say, uh, you know, Canary Labs Historian, I'm not going to Axiom, that is Canary Labs front end, to do my analysis. I'm 
I'm accessing Canary Labs through the factory studio front end. So it's still the same. And then I'm using, you know, a, uh, you know, a web browser component um, or a container to access that. I've also wondered about the role of applications running in the cloud. For example, ERP and even MES can multi-tenant cloud apps. Cloud's not necessarily limited to analytics or AI ML. Is it best to integrate once at the enterprise UNS and federate down? Or is it better to maintain a set of integrations at each site level UNS? It's actually better to integrate lower and federate up as opposed to federating down. But I get your point. I recognize there are no hard and fast rules here, but it'd be helpful to discuss. Here's the most common. Um, this is the most common architecture we have right here. And I, I, I tried to make it as simple as possible. So would you down would you, it the um this the refresh doesn't look like it's updating fully. What do you mean? Like the screen looks like it hasn't fully I don't know, is it coming through like that for you guys? Because my preview looks like I'm still seeing part of the part of your OneNote part of the old slide. Um Okay, well let's just make do with it the way it is, because I'm I'm looking at it on the stream, it looks okay. I mean it it looks a little annoying, but we'll let me um let me, uh, hold on, let me do this. And then let me switch back and tell me how that goes. How'd that do? Yeah, it, 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 just keep going. I think it updates after a second. All right, so, so here's what we've got. I've got, in this case, I've got three areas or three production lines on my plant floor, okay? The way that we architect is we will create a local unified namespace. So that is, you know, if it's an MQTT, it's going to be an MQTT broker that's got a local unified namespace here. So it's going to be architected, you know, enterprise site area, right? That's the namespace or it'll be, it'd be that. And then everything from that line will be in here. And the only thing I would see in this local unified namespace is the stuff up to that point. Okay. And you might see the same thing across, or I may see the entire area. I may have a namespace. That's the entire area with, line one, line two, line three, okay? So either or, I could have a local UNS that's one for each line, or I could have one that's the area with all three lines put in there, okay? What happens is we, we transmit that namespace up into the site namespace that now has an aggregation of multiple areas, okay? And at the same time, at the same time, this, this site where you see the green boxes is we are subscribing to the full namespace back down into this broker. So whether I go, so whether I'm an application that's connecting to this namespace to the, you know, so this IP address, this IP address, or that IP address, I'm accessing the exact same namespace. And no matter what I do to whatever I do to one, I'm doing to all three instances. Now, sometimes we achieve this through architecture. That is, where how do we set up the transmitters? How do we set up the subscriptions, right? Um, the ACLs. Or if I'm using like a product like HiveMQ or EMQ, those broker technologies, they have features built in where I can create this, Okay. And Matt Paris talks about this stuff all the time. He's doing a lot of playing with, um, you know, he's doing a lot of playing with um, HiveMQ at the moment, I think. Um, but you can use, and I think Matt Michael Dowdell mentioned that as well. 
um, the the um, you can recreate. So it's very similar. If, if you guys are familiar, like with a SQL cluster, right? Let's say I've, I've got a, just a massive database. And so I create a SQL server cluster. Basically, the way that cluster works is I've got many physical databases, many physical databases that are all wrapped around cluster technology. They're encased in a cluster technology. And then I've got a virtual host name. So one point that I'm going to hit and the, the cluster layer is going to decide which physical database to use to retrieve or insert to. And then the cluster will distribute that information to the rest of the physical databases or virtual databases. HiveMQ and EMQ, they offer the, a very similar technology, both of them. A lot of people are steering away from EMQ because it's, you know, it's a Chinese company and there's a lack of trust there. Um, for whatever reason, um, I personally still think that EMQ is just a, a tad ahead of HiveMQ in terms of capabilities, but HiveMQ just got a ton of funding and they clearly have the right values and mission and right focus. So I and think HiveMQ is going to end up ahead. There's no question. So they, um, they post a lot of content and, you know, so that's what I also like about HiveMQ. They post a lot of training content. They did a webinar with Opto22. Um but but Jeff, to answer your question, long term, I don't think it's going to matter. I, I don't think that the layer... Now, the only thing that's really going to matter is, you know, my SCADA HMI application is almost certainly going to be hitting the local unified namespace. Why? Because that's where that context is added, okay? But w we have many instances where we're passing... We're basically scaling the unified namespace up the stack and then once it gets it's complete as it gets up the stack, where we literally subscribe to the full namespace and get it back down into this level and this level. I may have a you know local unified namespace plus and the complete unified namespace as siblings to one another in the same broker inside this green square. Okay. And then which applications are generally functional? Michael Dowdell, I think, pointed that out you know, at which layer is functional. I want to talk about something Michael said. Um, Michael Dowdell said that um, panes of glass can be different depending on job function. That's correct. And what, what, what we generally do is we have everyone enter through the exact same point, And then within one mouse click, they've got to be able to get to where they got to get for job function. Um, Dan Kronberger, not sure this is for the conversation. A good network is transparent and often blamed for all problems. A bad one is the center of attention. Is the network ever discussed during these talks? Absolutely, Dave. Infrastructure is one of the pillars of the DTMA, by the way. Um, I can't pronounce his name. Um, so, Michael, you have it. Michael, you route people to the pane of glass they enter into is like after sign on check the role and get them to the to pane of glass that they're supposed to enter in instead of common entry point one click to where they got to go you're doing it you're filtering it on roles the question i would have is for the person who f has multiple roles how do you get them to where you know they want to go but that um point taken dowdell um go sightsee 
Hi, Walker. A random question. Do you guys know of a droid SCADA? It's part of a Mitsubishi. Yep, we know it. I'd like to know if anyone has managed to design a high-performance HMI through it. Thanks. And the answer is yes. <clears throat> All right. Let me get to my next question. Um, Benji, hi. Has anyone done anything with asset information being linked in the UNS? For example, having a topic for links to drawings or manuals, latest PLC code revision, etc., Potentially having something like Microsoft Flow linked to a OneDrive to push updates. Yep. Uh, feels like this asset info can be complement. The answer is yes, we do it all the time. Um, this was my actual response to him. Um, in So we take two approaches here. One is to include a topic at the asset level that contains just the string name of the current drawings. Uh, the other is to include a topic that contains the file path to the actual drawings file. It's quite common to include these topic topics in the namespace as we get into later iterations, maybe 12 to 18 months into the transformation. However, we've included these topics far earlier in the engagement if capabilities like digital work instructions are a requirement early on. And a very common topic namespace is digital work instructions. Um, and all, another common one is specifications. So you will have a specifications directory with topics for all specifications underneath them. Uh, John Patanian, I think HiveMQ calls it bridging. They do call it bridging, yes, to transmit between brokers, which may be distinct from clustering for high availability and scalability. Um, the answer is yes, yeah, correct. Well, bridging is a separate function of than clustering is. But yes, John Patanian, good comment. Um, <clears throat> for maintenance and reliability folks, what kind of challenges... Our organizations foreseeing with closing the skills gap in IIoT. Uh, all right, here here's the biggest challenge, Joan. Um, maintenance and reliability people they're um, they're expert at their trade, and the the older a maintenance or reliability person is, the likelihood their um, technical skills are um, not exceptional. I mean. You know, people who become, um, and I'm generalizing here, this is not the, the rule, okay? But um, maintenance and reliability positions are really shifting to technicians over like mechanics and electricians. So instead of being an electrician who um, is a card carrying um, um, person who completed their apprenticeship, Really, they're more technicians who who learn more about the underlying technology of the things that they fix. Um, the challenges that the organizations are foreseeing with closing the skills gap is you've got to encourage the technologist to learn to become a mechanic and an electrician. And that's the challenge because you have an entire generation of parents, my generation, Gen Xers, who, you know, told every one of their kids to go to college and told none of them to go to trade school. And that was just a stupid move. I got lucky. My parents told me to go to the military, go to trade school and get a college education. And I did all three. Um, Paul, how are drawings consumed by the end user? What is the front end? Uh, it is any front end that can consume from an MQTT broker topic namespace. In our case, it's factory studio, it's ignition, but um, sometimes it is there. There, it's a custom application. Um, sometimes it's some DevOps solution. You know, I mean, Azure DevOps is a is a great way to build applications that can consume that kind of information. 
Um, as interoperability increases, the scope of the manufacturing integrator increases, component integration, equipment integration, systems integration, business integration. Matt, you're um, sp spot on. The last thing that I would include in here um, is um, supply chain integration. So not external supply chain integration would be the last piece that I would I would add into that. Luke, Luke would add that one in there too. Correct. Uh, Faithware, hi guys. I wanted to ask about the advantages of using the AWS C++, C++ IoT SDK versus using MQTT directly. Are the features implemented in the SDK really worth it? The answer is yes, depending upon what try to, type of function you're gonna you're trying to achieve. Michael Brown from AWS, who's a member of the Discord server, is definitely the person to ask this question to. I would send him a direct message. Um, in our experience, we can use um, the MQTT capability out of the box without having to use the SDK for nearly every use case. Uh, I can't think of one where we use the SDK. Anyone interested in connecting multiple protocols? Here's a good edge computer. This is not edge. Easy edge is not a computer. It's software that runs on a computer. Uh, I'd be interested in if anyone knows about multi-protocol protocol and multi-cloud agnostic edge gateway that can connect to any level of the ISA 95 stack and do a bit of edge processing and send data to the cloud. I'm interested in your inputs and thoughts and any other similar products. So a similar product would be, well, there is a much better product than Easy Edge. I like Easy Edge. I, I like the concept of what they did. I I don't like the direction they've gone business-wise, like, you know, pricing's not published, that kind of stuff. It, mm -hmm. All the, you know, that's very annoying. Can't test drive it, all that kind of stuff. Um, the... But the bigger issue is that what Easy Edge does under the hood is encapsulated. It's uh, it's a black box. Um, High Byte is a much better solution here, um, and and comes with way more capabilities. So um, so similar products would be High Byte, but it would High Byte, you know, say uh, contains a hundred percent of e the Easy Edge uh, capability um, with plus 70, you know, plus 70% more functionality. I knew it was coming. Can we get through a stream and not say hi, Byte? Well, I mean, listen, two years from now, listen, guys, you know what I'm going to be famous for? I'm going to be famous for identifying hi, Byte as the game-changing game platform for industrial IoT. That's what I'm going to be famous for. Well, two years what, from what, now, two years yeah, from now, all people are going to be saying is, you know what, Walker was saying this three years ago. Today's 2021, but we've been talking about high bites since 2018. Two years. Two years. Five months after they started. <laughs> 2018, 2019. Yeah, I think they started like in August, you know, August or whatever, and they far exceeded our expectations. John Forboard, videos, live streaming in a unified namespace. I've got so many questions, I don't even know where to start. What's the best way to add process monitoring videos to the ecosystem? All right. So, John, there's no easy answer here, Okay. Um, there's no easy answer here. Okay. So in the, in the beginning, eight years ago or whatever, when I first really started working with MQTT, um, you know, hardcore, our Arlen Nipper and Will there, who's the lead developer guy who basically writes all the modules and stuff. They came to our office in Dallas and we talked about streaming video and we said, Hey, one of the things that we want to do is we want to be able to stream live video using an MQTT broker, um, basically over a cellular connection. We want to be able to monitor 
a well pad out in East Texas and and we want to be able to stream video. And how fast could we do that? If the video itself is 15 frames per second, how many of the frames could we actually get? And we settled on, you know, initially our test was let's go ahead and stream the raw video uh, over a MQTT topic payload um, and let's just send one frame every second. That should be plenty for us, right? It turned out we really only need one every five seconds, but one over one uh, with just a standard 4G connection, we were able to stream uh, one frame easily. We were able to stream 10 frames in the topic payload easily. We were able to stream all 15 in one second. So um, the the answer to your question is a little complicated because the, the, the real question that should be asked is, is that appropriate to do or is it appropriate to store video files somewhere to be accessed based on a trigger in the unified namespace? So that is triggering an event that tells us we should go look at a video. But to answer your question, you can absolutely to ship vid video. Yeah. What does Tesla do? Uh, I don't know. With their, I, 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 I can't tell you what they do now. That's for sure. The, the, I mean, that's a lot. They have a lot of video data. That's all I know. Well, almost certainly. I mean, one of the things that we do with vision systems, vision specifically, is what we do is we, on the edge, with an edge computer, we're storing all the video. And then when an abnormality is popped up, we go ahead and grab all the video from five seconds before, five seconds ahead, and then we s store it on a file share. And then we store the event in the unified namespace. That makes sense. So like maybe a lot of the stuff, if I were Tesla, I could process all the machine vision, all the eight cameras on the edge. And then if there were any anomalies in the computer vision, it would send those files so it could do edge detection. Why did we not detect this or whatever? Uh, Tall Rob said, has anyone here done integration of Ignition to N4EAM? The answer is yes. We have a really awesome use case in um, Arkansas um, for a tier one automotive supplier. I'm looking for any docs or samples to start in the right direction. End goal is to automate generation of work orders. So here was the use case. This is exactly what we've done. So uh, using MES 4.0, so Ignition MES running on all their machines. Um, basically, in the upper left-hand corner, there was an icon. We through we built a, a REST interface with the Infor API, um, and then we built an interface where the operator, if as soon as an event the machine went down, there's a pop-up that asks the operator, "Do you need to open a work order?" Now that was configurable, so on some machines you could say, "I don't want that pop-up to happen." They could just click on the icon, and then they could generate a work order automatically. They could the the asset is passed in automatically. Um, all the parameters for the asset itself in Infor was passed in automatically. And that and that was all retrieved from through the API. We would we would be able to store the rising edge of the event, the rising edge of the work order being generated. They would click submit. It would automatically be sent to the Infor backend through the API. From Infor, we would retrieve all the work orders that open work orders. We used an algorithm that prioritized the work orders from the Infor EAM. And then it would display the work orders in the maintenance department through an ignition dashboard that showed them which work order needed to be addressed second next through priority. It was a function. There was a algorithm we had to write to determine the priority. The mechanic or electrician will walk out to the machine. When they got to the machine, they would say they was there. So we would pick up that event. Then they would do their fix. 
they would type in their comments for the work order and close it right from the MES interface. They would close it. We'd hit the N4EIM API on the back end, and then we would take all the collective data and publish it into the unified namespace so it would contain the, the, an array of the exact work order with all the, the rise, rising uh, and falling edges of the events. And then there was a bunch of dashboards that went to the maintenance manager that he could see and watch performance on. It, was, uh, it actually was not very expensive to do. Um, we, I think we did it maybe three, four years ago. If you want to reach out to us, I can um, probably uh, I can ask Matt to give a demo of it to you, and we can show you the flow diagram and how that worked if you want. Um, that one's supposed to be dropped. Um, we'll do that one next week. All right, let's do this one. Let, this will be the last question we answered today. Nice. Um, Jeff Robinson, so I get that when the UNS is an MQTT broker fed by something like HiByte, uh, it's only going to hold the latest events value state and that to host history, you can do some data gymnastics within the UNS to host a history topic, or you can retrieve the history from the historical node. Um, why not use a streaming platform like Kafka to receive the structured output from a HiByte so that the real-time state and history are available on the same topic. Why not restructure it up, but from high bite, so the real-time state and history are available on the same topic. Um, so a couple of things. Number one, uh, you, can use, you can go from high bite to Kafka to stream into a data lake, right? So let's talk about what Kafka is. So Kafka is a is really a streaming optimization tool for time series data for the most part. That's really what its core functionality is. Connect one database time series into a data lake or many databases time series data lake. Kafka does all the optimization. So you can say how frequently you want to send send records, that kind of stuff. And it, it does all the optimization to take really, really heavy uh, results, uh, results sets from databases and get them into a data lake. That's really what Kafka does. That's what it does best. Does some other things too. Um, the answer is, is that you could, you could use Kafka to coming out of high bite to, um, to stream into a data lake. I'm not sure why you would want, what's the reason that you would want to put the history inside the unified namespace why wouldn't you just use the structure of the unified namespace to retrieve the history? Correct. Kafka has queuing, right? To, to it does. That's part of the optimization. There are there are parameters in Kafka. How frequently you want to um, send the messages? How big can those messages be? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> uh, John Forboard said, "I'm curious what Walker has to say about this." When I get this question myself. I know they're not really convinced with the answer. It's a solution, not a technology. Can't really build topics the same ways with MQTT. Um, but yeah, it's a seriously powerful tool for a very specific problem. I like to say that Kafka is, you know, comparing Kafka and um, Hybyte, for example, um, or comparing Kafka and the unified namespace is not even an apples to oranges comparison. It's like an apples to rocks comparison. They're not... Kafka has is is a great tool for a very specific functionality, but the unified namespace is um, it's the structure and the events of your business. What you do with those structure and events of those businesses is up to the architect. 
right? If there would, aren't any, would it be like comparing MQTT to OPCUA for using an IoT infrastructure. Um, very would... similar, with the exception Kafka's edge driven. And it's report by exception. We're still getting we're still getting that comment, by the way. Like, um, well, we just got a comment uh, the other day on our um, the is OPC UA the future of IIoT video. On, it's man. been out for a year now, and someone commented, you know, basically saying, you know, we're, they're still seeing OPC UA get get installed out there. So, like, go ahead, keep. I mean, install OPC UA. Well, how do we? I, how do we? It's listen. I mean, it's it's basic math. <laughs> it, it doesn't it's not even complicated to to prove that you can't build times more inefficient on the bad end and two and a half times more efficient in best case scenario average is 10 times more inefficient right correct correct it, so, it's not, it's just basic math it's simply basic math here's the lone advantage of opc ua there's only one advantage of opc ua or one real strength, and it's the information model. Everyone agrees that the um, the OPC UA information model is extensive. Here's the problem. It applies the information model to everything. And 70% of the standard is optional. There's so much technical debt built into the specification, you couldn't possibly undo the technical debt. And, and unless the OPC Foundation, um, Mirzak Faikal, you want to, Zach, will you share the link to, or, or just will somebody share the link to the, um, I think it's the Canary Labs blog entry. It's, it, it contains all of our metrics. And I think Matt Paris has my yeah, latest results that I shared with everybody. But um, the, the OPC Foundation, unless they fully leverage part 14 to undo the mistakes in um, the OPC UA spec, which still basically assumes server-client relationships, right, and still tries to be everything to everyone. I mean, listen, Matt Paris and I had this conversation. If the OPC standard, OPC UA standard, has all these possible capabilities in it, why is it that no one uses it? Why is it no one puts OPC servers in their PLCs for the most part, John John Harrington left like a, a great comment in the Discord. He's like, I see a lot of companies adopting, you know, the OPC UA model and foundation, but I don't see anyone actually implementing it. Like, where is the use cases? You know, where is where is the success? And the reason why is the reason why is because you have horrible performance issues using OPC UA. Um, Correct. Hold on a second. Jeffrey Schrader, this is a good answer and, and it should drive home the point. Shipping PLCs with embedded OPC UA servers supporting binary TCP data access does not mean OPC UA is thriving. Until we see things with PubSub and information modeling, it's vaporware. And here's why it's scalability. The fundamental problem with OPC UA is that when you get to the OPC server, all right, so that is the, we're assuming the OPC server is where you're going to build out that specific namespace, you're limited by two things. Number one, what you the vast majority of what you put into that server, you, server you model into that server, is a function of what you know about the things you're talking to. The things you're talking to cannot report to you in most cases their state. 
And what we want to do is create self-aware systems, right? You want to put smart things on the plant floor that send their information to you, not you need to, you know what the information is and you go retrieve it. That's limitation number one. Limitation number two is you can't put millions and millions and millions of servers or many millions and millions and millions of data topics in an OPC server. Have you ever looked at the OPC Foundation's enterprise architectural diagram? Do you know how many OPC clients and servers they have in that damn thing? It would cost you millions of dollars in software just to do the infrastructure. I mean, it's, it's absurd. It's literally absurd. As soon as someone makes the case for OPC UA as the, I, the IOT infrastructure, I know they do You're not know. Now. Hold on a second. I know they do not know what they are talking about, and they have never digitally transformed an organization. I did not pick MQTT because I was fucking bored, okay? I didn't. I mean, I, 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 I didn't pick MQTT because I hate Stefan Hopp at the OPC Foundation. I don't. There's a lot about the OPC UA standard I love. The reason I picked MQTT and edge-driven report by exception lightweight open architecture is because of the fucking limitations of OPC UA. I didn't do that because I was fucking bored. And not every organization can spend millions and millions of dollars on hundreds and hundreds of nodes, hundreds and hundreds of instances of OPC servers and clients. So stop saying, ask the question, why is OPC UA not the future? Let me ask you this. If it was the future, why did they create part 14? <laughs> and, if you're gonna, and if you're going to use part 14, which recommends using MQTT, okay, which it does, <laughs> then why wouldn't you use the standard written by the guy who writes, who, who invented MQTT? I mean, come on. It was like, you can't, you can't win the debate. That's why they don't come debate me on it. No, that's okay. I guess that's my, you just answered my question. Cause my question is, okay, well, we, we make it a declarative statement saying that this does work. This doesn't work, but they don't say anything. They just say, no, it, they just, they don't say anything, right? They, they don't say, they don't okay. say, they don't say MQTT doesn't work, but we do say that that doesn't work. So there's really no response on the other side. Like, well, because you know the impure, the impure, again, is the, there, is, am, the, am I just, the empirical data is on the side of those who are focused on the four core pillars, edge-driven, report-by-exception, lightweight, open architecture, okay? If you're focused on those four pillars because you believe, hey, that's the only way that we're going to be able to scale, right? That's the only way we're going to be able to create stateful, self-aware systems, right? Which the smart people all believe that, then you're, you can't come to the conclusion that OPC UA, especially server-client, is going to work. And then... So then if you decide to say, I'm going to go ahead and implement OPC UA part 14, then why in God's name would you use the OPC standard? What is the reason, unless in, 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 the, in the rare instance where that information model is the one you want to implement? It, I mean, well, you could build the OPC UA model in Sparkplug B if you wanted to, right? <laughs> or parts of it that you wanted. Well, but you'd still be using their standard. Right, that's a point. Right, right. Which why you would you, still be using their standard. No, correct. Um, All right, so we'll, we'll, I, I know we're fifteen minutes over. I appreciate everyone staying on um, for the time. I want to say thank you again to Shrihari for joining us. I know he it was like eleven o'clock at night his time. Um, Matt Paris, by the way, this is Matt Paris asked this question to everybody. 
what software available on the market will allow my equipment discover uh, to discover the other equipment using OPC UA. And I mean, here's the reality. You could, you could create an ecosystem, Matt, you could create a solution that does that. Right. But it would be server client, you know, the um, thought that you would try to create AI and AI and not, an AI manufacturing plant without having a self-aware system doesn't make any sense. It's like, how could your brain work if none of the parts of its body were reporting by exception to your brain? Correct. You need an IIoT infrastructure. Correct. Oh, wait, All, right. All right, there, Jeff we'll Schrader. this one next week. Thanks for watching, guys. Um, yeah, yeah. We, we will talk to you guys next week. We'll, we'll add some the the final comments on here. And we'll talk about OPC UA again next week. Appreciate everyone's feedback. Bye. Tip.